verses 21 through 31, and we're kind of going a bit classical this morning, and I'm going to read out of the King James Version. So I can't tell you what page it's on if you want to follow along. Let's pray together. Father of grace, you are the beginning and the end, and we look to you now to open our ears and and our minds to receive from you what you have for us from your word, and we, we lift up Pastor Adam that he would bring that to us this morning and that we would all be nourished and blessed and ready for the rest of the day in this coming week to serve you and love you. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, Isaiah 40, starting in, chap- in, in uh, verse 21. Have ye not known? Have ye not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in, that bringeth the princes to nothing. He maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. Yea, they shall not be planted. Yea, they shall not be sown. Yea, their stock shall not take root in the earth. And he shall also blow upon them, and they shall wither. And the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. To whom then will we liken me? Or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high, and behold, who hath created these things that bringeth out their host by number? He calleth them all by names by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God? Hast thou not known Hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. He giveth the power to the faint, and to them that have no might he increaseth strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fail. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles, They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not be faint. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. may be seated. We're continuing our series through Exodus this morning. If you'd like to join me, I'd like to draw your attention to Exodus chapter 3. We're still at the burning bush. Can't seem to get past the burning bush. But there is just so much here. And what we have here at the burning bush is the call of Moses. Moses is being commissioned into ministry. He's being told he needs to go back to Egypt and talk to the elders of Israel about uh, the fact that God has heard them and God is going to save them from Egypt and bring them to the promised land. And they need to go and talk to the Pharaoh so that the Pharaoh will let them go. So this is the setup for this particular scene. And we've been looking at this back and forth between God and Moses. What we have today is what Moses is supposed to say to Israel's leaders when he goes back. 
Because one of the first questions that he asks is, I don't know if they're going to believe me. Uh, What am I supposed to tell them? Who do I tell them sent me? And that sort of a thing. Last week, we looked at God's divine name or his proper name, Yahweh. And this week, we're going to go a little further into God's answer to Moses. I'm going to begin in verse 16 of chapter 3. I'm going to read 16 to 22. This is what God tells Moses is going to happen. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, and you see that's in all caps in most of your Bibles, and so we know that that's the divine name that God just introduced himself with, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. Remember that God said that there, verse 18. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold, jewelry, and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters so shall you plunder the Egyptians. All right. Now, as I've said before, people are tempted to read this section of Scripture fairly quickly because what they're looking for is some kind of allegorical application of the plot. But I think what's happening here is God revealing himself to Moses, and ultimately he wants Moses to repeat these same things back to the elders of Israel. So he's revealing himself. This is the self-revelation of God. So this is kind of like a theology class that Moses is taking there, standing in front of the burning bush with his shoes off and hiding his face. This is a theology class. This is a Bible doctrine class as God is revealing himself. And this is important because God had not spoken for hundreds of years. If you remember that, it had been Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then there was this quiet period where the people grew and multiplied down in Egypt. Plus, you've got to consider that not much of the Bible had been written yet. And so the people just didn't know God very well. So God reveals himself to them. God says, here's what I'm like. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I've done in the past, and so on. And uh, Moses is learning theology that he's supposed to pass on to the Israelites. So let's just look. Now, what do we learn about God from this passage? And then we ask ourselves, okay, then how should we act toward this God? In light of the fact that he's like this, how should we act? But we begin with the theology class. What is it that we've learned about God from these, this paragraph or two of Scripture And I'd like to just summarize a few things or categorize a few things. God says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, why does he say that? He's not some new God. This isn't some new thing. This isn't a different God, but this is the God of their heritage. And this reveals God's long-term faithfulness. God made promises way back in the early chapters of Genesis. And here he is again, hundreds of years later, being faithful to these promises. This shows us that God has a plan that spans all history. 
This shows us that God does not change. What he says is, I have observed, and I think that's a wonderful little phrase, because sometimes we think about God. If we exaggerate God's majesty, uh, we may forget that God actually pays attention to a little life like mine, to some little disastrous and significant life like mine. And yet here, God is telling these Israelites, I have observed what's going on in your life. And this shows us God's steadfast love, that wonderful word that the writers of the, or that the translators of the NIV had to come up with back in the 1970s because they couldn't figure out a good word uh, for the Hebrew there. And they invented that steadfast love idea. I have observed. This shows us God's compassion. This shows us God's imminence, not just his transcendence. When we talk about his transcendence, we're talking about him being so great and so awesome and so different from us. But when we talk about his imminence, we talk about his closeness. And so here he says, I have observed the great creator of all the universe is actually paying attention to individual people at that point. God also says, I promise that I will bring you up. And I like that. I promise. You know, sometimes my kids ask me, Dad, promise. You know, I'll say, we're going to go to have yogurt for, you know, frozen yogurt. or something. Well, do you promise? Or that kind of a thing. So here's God, the great father. And he's talking to his kids and he says, I promise. I know this is going to be hard for you to believe because you've all been born in slavery and it's all that you know. You've heard a baby about the promised land, little stories that your mom told you when you were a kid, but it's been hundreds of years and nobody's even met Joseph and all of that. But I promise that I'm going to bring you up and out. And so this is showing us that God is a promise maker and God is a promise fulfiller and he has ultimate power. He keeps saying, I will do it. This is something that I will do. He doesn't say, Moses, this is going to be a tough one. I'm not sure how it's going to work, but I think you ought to go try to do this or that. No, what he says is, I'm doing this and you're going to come along for the ride. I want you to kind of be the mouthpiece here, but here's what I'm going to do. I promise that I will bring you up. This reveals God as having ultimate power over his creation. He is sovereign. He can make a guarantee about the future. None of us can, none of us can do that, right? But God can make a guarantee about what's going to be happening here in the next few months, in the next year. He guarantees what's going to happen. And this also shows us that God is victorious over his enemies. And we see that all the way through scripture as well. God is victorious over his enemies. Egypt was the great enemy of God that had enslaved God's people. And Pharaoh eventually says no and no and no to the God of the universe. But God is victorious over the greatest, most powerful leader on the globe. God also says they will listen in regard to the uh, Jewish elders. They will listen. And he says, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled. He knows and he rules the future. And we see these things repeated. God also says, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do. That's a great statement. And we see God talking about his great wonders all the time. So this must be important if God keeps talking about it. And here he's introducing it. And it sounds like he's kind of excited. Don't you think? It sounds like he's excited. He's about to do some incredible global scale miracles. And he's like, you're never going to believe this. This is going to be awesome. I'm about to do some awesome stuff right in front of all of you. 
I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do. There's lots of eyes there. And since God is the most powerful being that exists, then it is right and good and true for him to want to be glorified, for him to want to get glory, because there is nothing more glorious than him. And so it doesn't make any sense for God the Father to be humble because there's nothing beneath him. I mean, there's nothing above him. So God is eager to display his glory. God is powerful. God is victorious. God is heroic. He also says, I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. He's referring to the silver and gold that they end up leaving town with. I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians and you shall plunder them. So here again, we see God being victorious over his enemies. This is like the plunder that you get when you win a war. But there's also a God of justice going on here because they've been enslaved for a long time. So it's interesting that on their way out, they're going to get paid. For all of that, all that slavery, they're going to get paid. So God is a God of justice and God is a God of victory. Uh, so without a sword or anything, God is victorious over his enemies. And uh, eventually, and I think that eventually leads to God wanting to get glory, because if you remember, they go out with all this silver and gold and stuff, and that ends up being the material that is used to construct the utensils for the tabernacle worship. So all of this is basic theology, right? We're all taking a theology class here, kind of like Moses standing in front of the burning bush. These are truths about God that the Israelites needed to know. God is faithful. God loves us with a steadfast love. God has ultimate power. God is victorious. God wants to display his glory and does display his glory and wants to get glory from us for displaying his glory and all of these things. Now, it's interesting to look ahead a little bit because if you think about Moses at this particular moment in history, Moses is kind of, he's hiding his face, he's got his shoes off and he keeps saying stuff like, yeah, but, and I don't know about, and this kind of a thing. And eventually he just says, can't you send someone else? So Moses is not a picture of courage at this particular moment standing in front of the burning bush. And uh, so it's interesting to fast forward this a little bit. And it'll be fun to kind of savor each each, uh, chapter as we go through here. But if we fast forward this uh, into chapter 15, after they've seen all of these promises come true, after the 10 plagues, after crossing through the Red Sea, after Pharaoh's army has been drowned by God in the Red Sea, now all of a sudden the theology has been experienced. Keep your thumb here and let's flip over to chapter 15. Okay, so here's the scene. At the burning bush, Moses is sitting there getting a theology class, and he's kind of like, yeah, well, okay, but maybe there's somebody else, and I'm not sure, and all this kind of stuff. Now in chapter 15, all this doctrine that God has been revealing to him about himself, now all of a sudden, Moses has experienced it. He's standing on the other side of the Red Sea with, like, pharaoh's army stuff floating on the top of the red sea and stuff and they're free and god has done exactly what he said he was going to do and so that theology has been experienced by moses and there's no more of this knee knocking from him at this particular moment now he's all about worship now all of these same attributes of god that are revealed at the burning bush Moses praises God for in what is called the Song of Moses in chapter 15. So let me, let me just draw your attention to some of this. 
Exodus chapter 15, this is Moses, the, the, the guy hiding his face and everything like this and at the burning bush. He says, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider, he is thrown into the sea. You guys remember that children's song? Who's old enough to remember that song? Yeah, a couple people. Verse two, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Do you hear how personal that is? Moses isn't saying, can you send somebody else? I don't know if I can do this and that sort of a thing. He says, the Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. So there you have him referring back to the fact that God is the father. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And he describes how Moses' army was defeated. And then you see down in verse 11, he says, Who is like you, Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. That's beautiful. So watch what happens here. Moses is standing there at the burning bush and God reveals himself to him. And Moses decides to take a risk. It's almost like God pulls him by the ear because the last thing Moses says is, can't you send somebody else? And God is like, and we don't know what happened after that, but it's a little bit of grabbing him by the ear and saying, we're doing this. So who knows, but Moses takes a risk. After his little doctrine class at the burning bush, He decides to take a risk and trust God. And he does what God tells him to do. Finds Aaron, talks to the elders, and eventually goes to Pharaoh. Which leads to Moses experiencing God, which leads to Moses worshiping God. That's just an interesting process, don't you think? Well, what specific attributes is Moses worshiping God for? After it's all said and done, he did the doctrine class and he decided, I don't know about this, but okay. And then he experiences God and now he's worshiping God. What is popping out of his mouth when he's worshiping God? And I would argue that it's the exact same theology that God reveals at the burning bush, except now it's not a theology class, it's a worship song. He talks about triumph and victory. The Lord has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider has been drowned into the sea. He, says, he calls him my father's God. So you hear him recognizing that heritage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and God's faithfulness there. He says that God is majestic in holiness. What a beautiful phrase that is, majestic in holiness. He says God is awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. Remember at the burning bush, God says, here's what I'm gonna do. And now at, at the other side of the Red Sea, Moses says, here's what God did. Awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders. But God isn't just transcendent and powerful, but he's also imminent. And so Moses also praises God for his steadfast love for people. His steadfast love for people. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. So God is a lover. He is a steadfast lover. He is a redeemer. And then finally, you have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Moses was worried. I'm not a very good speaker. I don't know if I can do this and so on. And he has learned that he was fairly irrelevant 
to that whole thing because God is the one who did it. God guided them, <laughs> guided them by your strength. So Moses has experienced exactly what God said he would do. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. Get up, get up, get up. Get up. Come on, let's do. I'm going to do this. Come along for the ride. And you put all of this theology together and what we have is glory. God is glorious. God is revealing himself as a glorious God to these people who don't know him very well and they're not totally sure if we should trust him. And God is revealing himself to them. And this is our God too, the same God. The same God of the burning bush, the same God that split the Red Sea. All right, so little theology here this morning. You think, oh, I'm not an academic or something. Hey, hey, this is amazing stuff. These are truths about God. These are truths about God. And so what I want to do for the rest of our time is I want to talk about four implications of this theology. Four implications of this theology. Okay? Four implications of God being glorious. Or another way that you could ask this is, if it's true that God is what he describes himself to be in chapter 3 of Exodus, if God is really like this, what kind of a difference does that make in your Sunday afternoon? Four implications. Number one, he is still victorious over his enemies. He is still victorious over his enemies. Back in the Exodus, God is defeating this great slaveholder Egypt. But you know, in the New Testament, God does much the same thing in sending Jesus Christ to defeat death and Satan. He frees us from the rule of sin, that dominating old man that makes us sin. He frees us from that, provides a way of escape, gives us the Holy Spirit so that we can walk righteously. And we do that imperfectly. We all still sin, but we are not trapped by it. Sin is not the boss of me anymore because the cross of Jesus Christ broke the dominion of sin in my life and not just removed the dominion of sin, but also the penalty of sin. So we are no longer enslaved to the consequence of sin, which is eternal conscious punishment in hell. But when we repent for our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's our father and we get to live forever in his presence. And so there is a freedom, there is a liberation that happens when Jesus Christ, the redeemer, comes and sets us free. And he defeats Satan so that we can, as Paul said, stand against the schemes of the devil. And Jesus promises to return to defeat sin and Satan once for all, giving us glorified new bodies that don't have that old sin nature anymore and also making all things new. He is still victorious over his enemies. He was victorious, he is still victorious, and he will be victorious over his enemies. Now, we might be tempted not to believe in God's victory. We might think that our enemies are, ex are especially strong or this particular scenario is so, so unjust and injustice is so dominating in this particular culture that there's no escape from it. Or we might think that that particular temptation I have is so strong or this, ultimate li this alternate life that I'm thinking about that isn't along God's ways, but it seems better. So there might be all kinds of reasons that we might be tempted to not believe in God's power and victory over his enemies. Except listen to this from 1 Corinthians. Just, you know, just listen to this. Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, 
but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this imperishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And then so Paul says, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're talking about implications of God being glorious. What is the implication of God being gloriously victorious over his enemies? And Paul answers that for us at the end of the passage that I was just reading. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So God was victorious in Moses' day. God is victorious now over the dominion of sin and Satan, and he will be victorious forever. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. I know that temptation seems like a wonderful alternate life, and you're not sure if God's ways are better. I know that that enemy or that trauma seems so massive that there's no way to stand up when it's over. But my beloved brothers, be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Four implications of God's glory. Number two, he is still awesome in glorious deeds doing wonders. Still. We think, well, I haven't seen the Red Sea split. So that must have been easy for them to believe in God because he was there in the pillar of a cloud and all of that kind of stuff. So let me just argue here that God is still awesome, even though you haven't seen a a sea split in half. God is still awesome in glorious deeds doing wonders. One of the big, big awesome things that God has done is creation. And we can all look around and see what he has done in his awesome and glorious deeds doing wonders in creation. And we read about what God has done in history at the burning bush or even saving Moses from certain death. We see the 10 plagues, we see Passover, we see the Red Sea crossing and lots and lots and lots more. He created and he sustains and he rules all things. So Moses, in his song in chapter 15, Moses says, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. God, God, God does awesome things. And you fast forward a little bit and you think about Christ and some of the awesome things that God did there. Wondrous deeds in a virgin birth. That hadn't happened before. Virgin birth. God's, God sends Jesus Christ, who also performed a few miracles of his own. Turning water into wine, healing the sick, feeding the 5,000, walking on water, raising Lazarus, and more. And mainly, 
the great thing that God did was sending his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross. And that infinitely perfect quality that he has created a sacrifice there on the cross that covers all of our sins. But there's more. He didn't just die, but he also rose again. Rose again from the grave. Three days later, he got up and he still lives. And so that penalty that he paid and that eternal life, all of that is given to anybody who puts their trust in Jesus Christ. It's an incredible, wondrous deed. Now, we may not be so convinced by the wonders of creation or the exodus or, or Jesus Christ and the cross or the empty tomb. Maybe, maybe this Bible here is just kind of a fairy tale. Maybe, uh, maybe he isn't personally involved in the universe. Maybe I'm not significant to God. But you know that creation itself speaks loudly to you. Look around and see creation's designer. And I dare you to read the words of Scripture, not just on a website that's trying to point out inconsistencies and so on, but I mean actually pick up the book of John. Start at Genesis and start reading through and see if any of it rings true. There's an incredible consistency to it. But the interesting thing that happens, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit teaches us what's in the Word of God. You pick this thing up and you read this, not as a skeptic, but just thinking, hmm, I wonder if any of this might be true. And see what happens. Take a risk. Take a risk. Take a little tiny grabbed-by-the-ear kind of faith and read this thing. Creation speaks loudly. The word of God speaks loudly. Is there some probability, some probability that there is an awesome designer and an awesome writer? And maybe that creator redeemer worked in the past. And if he did work in the past, maybe he will work today. Why not take that risk? You think, well, my country is too godless or... My family is too messed up or my life is too insignificant to expect any great and mighty deeds from God. You know what the real problem is? Your God is too small. Your understanding of God is too small. God's actions are not ordinary. They are mighty and awesome and glorious. So what are the implications of this? If God is gloriously awesome... And does glorious, awesome, wondrous deeds, what are the implications? When God reveals himself as this kind of a God through creation, exodus, cross, and tomb, and all of the other ways that he reveals himself, what kind of a response is appropriate or normal in light light of a God who is that awesome? John chapter 20 tells us, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. We consider these miracles that God has done, and the purpose of this is that God would be glorified by us saying, yeah, there is a God, and he owns me, and he made me, and I believe King David said in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he says, You are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you 
There is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. That's a good response to an awesome and glorious God. Four implications of God's glory. Here's number three. He still cares for us with steadfast love. He still cares for us with steadfast love. He saw the distress of Israel in chains. He created a way to save them, and he created a way to pop his tent right in the middle of all of theirs. He still cares for us with a steadfast love. He is one who sees distress. He is one who dwells with us. So, here in the New Testament, he sends Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, and he tabernacled among us. He lived right among all a bunch of disciples, died on the cross, rose again from the grave, then sent the Holy Spirit. And the point of all of this is reconciliation. The reconciliation between uh, humanity that had pushed God away, told God to shove off, and God creates a way for reconciliation to happen so that we can live for eternity in his presence. He is our redeemer. Therefore, we ought to repent and believe and evangelize. Now, why might we not do this? Are there any reasons not to have faith in God's steadfast love? If you look around at your life, you think about your biography, you think about other stuff happening right now, maybe disappointments and failures or embarrassments or traumas. Lots of reasons not to believe that God loves you, right? Psalm thirteen five. I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Read the earlier parts of that psalm. This was not some cakewalk biography. Psalm 21, 7. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Now you read through what actually happened in David's life. I mean, just think for a minute of the heartbreak that occurred in that dude's life. And so in a moment of clarity, he, you know, whips out his, I don't know what they had, papyrus or whatever, and he writes this down. For the king trusts in Yahweh and through the steadfast love of the most high he shall not be moved he even speaks of himself in the third person what are the implications of God's gloriously steadfast love what are the implications of God's gloriously steadfast love and I would suggest something like trust I have trusted in your steadfast love he says in Psalm 13 Stuff like singing, which we're going to do in a few minutes here. And I know, I know what that's like to try and sing when you don't really feel like singing. I know what that's like. And I love that the great songwriter of Scripture himself says, I will sing to the Lord. My heart shall rejoice in, my sal- in, in your salvation. And then this big phrase, the king shall not be moved. Through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. That's worthy of the refrigerator, right? Pop that on the refrigerator and think about that one for a couple of years. Through the steadfast love of the Most High, I shall not be moved. 
four implications of God's glory. Here's number four. He still guides his people by his strength. Still. He did it then. He's going to do it later. And he does it now. Individual, insignificant people like you and me. When I die, people will remember my name for 5, 10, 15 years, a few family members, a couple of stories, and eventually the memory of me will pass away. But this is true. The word of the Lord stands forever. This is true. That in the moment I'm at right now, as insignificant and unimportant as I am, God guides me by his strength. He does it through his word. And he does it through his indwelling Holy Spirit. And he does it with angels in the unseen realm and all kinds of other mysterious ways that he arranges circumstances. J.I. Packer wrote this. Guidance, like all God's acts of blessing under the covenant of grace, is a sovereign act. Not merely does God will to guide us in the sense of showing us his way that we may tread it. He wills also to guide us in the more fundamental sense of ensuring that whatever happens, whatever mistakes we may make, we shall come safely home. Slippings and strains will be no doubt. But the everlasting arms are beneath us. We shall be caught, rescued, restored. This is God's promise. This is how good he is. That's J.I. Packer. What are the implications of God gloriously guiding us by his power? Well, one would be to look for his guidance in his word and study it. If this is true, that God does this kind of thing, we ought to study this thing. Another implication would be to rest in his future promises. Like believe what this says. That he works all things for good for those who love him. And it also makes sense to submit to the things that we learn in his word. Yes, imperfectly, but it is reasonable. (laughs) It is a rational, reasonable thing to study this and obey what is here. Because God's ways are better. Better than our alternate lives that seem so wonderful. Erwin Lutzer, one of my old preaching profs, and I mean old in all senses of that word, said this, If there is one single reason why good people turn evil, it is because they fail to recognize God's ownership over their kingdom, their vocation, their resources, their abilities, and above all, their lives. God still guides his people by his strength because he is worthy of doing so. And he is the only one worthy of doing so. He is a great and sovereign and good and right ruler. And it is right for us to study him, to look to him for guidance, to rest in his future promises, and to submit to him. So all of these things are true. These little pieces of doctrine here, all of these things are true. God is glorious in victory over his enemies. God is glorious in his awesome and glorious deeds. God is glorious in his steadfast love. God is glorious in guiding his people by his strength. Now, like I've done hundreds of times, here in this little squeaky spot, 
I can preach a sermon explaining these attributes, but at the end of the day, you're going to have to decide if you're going to have faith in this God. A sermon can function like a burning bush. That was a simile. A sermon can function like a burning bush. You've just heard certain truths about God. So the question, friends, brothers, sisters, the question here, God has revealed himself this morning. He is glorious. Can you take a risk and trust this glorious God? It calls for a response. And we've explored a few of them here this morning. Let me summarize. Trust and obey might be a good response to such a glorious God. God is the ruler of all things. He reveals himself so that we will follow him as disciples. That's why he reveals himself, so that he will be followed by disciples, by people, so that he can dwell in the midst of our lives, trust and obey, and also worship. So we study him and we listen to the doctrine, we listen to the theology, and then we take this risky step thinking, okay, let's try this, and we experience him, And then we stand up, as we're going to do in about five minutes, and we worship. Having experienced a glorious God, we worship. And God is still making a global people for the purpose of being worshipped globally. People that worship him in spirit and in truth. Are you going to be among those people? Are you going to be among those people that joyfully and carefully live under and near God? Will you experience God through study and obedience so that you can shout for joy? There's lots of alternate gods, lots of alternate saviors. We live in a culture with all kinds of proposals for better ways to live and so on. There's lots of temptations, lots of reasons to despair, lots of ways to waste a life. But it is not reasonable, having read this, Having had our own little mini burning bush this morning, it is not reasonable to lose hope. The God of Moses is the same God we worship together this morning, and it is reasonable to expect him to be the same God. First Chronicles 16, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let me conclude with this little poem, and I'm sorry that I can't remember the author's name. But she wrote, Lord, I crawled across the barrenness to you with my empty cup, uncertain in asking any small drop of refreshment. If only I had known you better, I'd have come running with a bucket. (laughs) Okay, I said I was going to close, but let me do Isaiah 40 again. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. Anybody feel faint this morning? He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God in heaven, you are a great and awesome God. 
you love us with steadfast love and you lead our lives and you have made so many great promises. And yet even still, God, temptations come into our minds that, well, maybe he doesn't exist or maybe the word is filled with so many errors or maybe it's just a fairy tale or maybe my life is too much of a disaster or maybe the world's ways are better. God, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would explode the truth in our hearts and soften us so that we can see who you really are. God, we are asking you to reveal yourself to us and increase our strength and help us to walk by faith, not by sight, so that we can experience your goodness, your blessings, your power, your majesty, and so that we can worship you today, tomorrow, and forever. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.